Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Great to see you guys. Hope your summer is off to a good start. Uh, I know for my wife and I, it's already been kind of full of trips and weddings and all of the, the fun things that come along with uh, summer. But we are um, just really happy to be with you this morning and gather together to study the scriptures and worship Jesus together. Uh, we are continuing in our series on the book of Matthew. So if you have a, a Bible or a Bible app, you can go ahead and pull that out and turn to Matthew 22, verse 15. If you were with us last week, uh, you know that our friend Steve Oliver was visiting uh, from South Africa but currently living in London and we uh, took a break from the Matthew series and Steve just kind of shared from his own life uh, about just uh, the power of the Holy Spirit and the role that the Holy Spirit is kind of supposed to play and must play essentially in the life of the church if it's going to survive and thrive in our uh, secular age. And it was a wonderful day in the life of our church. Um, Steve was really um, blessed, he would say, to be here uh, with all of you. And uh, it was awesome. But if you were here last Sunday, you also know that our sound system failed. So we lost the podcast. Yeah, which is sad. Um, But... Last week was amazing. Um, Steve will be back again uh, at some point, and the Holy Spirit did not depart with him uh, back to London. So, who knows what might happen this morning. Uh, But if you were here with us two weeks ago, uh, we were uh, studying through the book of Matthew. We were in Matthew 21, and we talked about the triumphal entry you can remember two weeks back and uh, what we talked about was kind of this loaded statement that Jesus made by entering into Jerusalem through the east gate on the Passover riding on a donkey it it was this loaded gesture that sent a message uh, to the crowds and essentially this is the message that it sent he was saying in effect God has now returned to Jerusalem And I am the promised king from the line of David and and the line of Judah. I am the coming Messiah, promised all the way back in Genesis. And through me, God will achieve the salvation of the faithful and the judgment of the world. Through me, God is going to build a global kingdom in which I will rule as the kind and humble king. And note that most of this message was communicated non-verbally. He didn't have to say all of this, but the people understood it based on what he was doing. And as a result of sending this message into the crowds of Passover, the eyes of the city were on Jesus. Everyone's watching to see what he will do next. But instead of challenging the Roman oppressors and freeing the Jewish people as they anticipated, instead he challenges the Jewish religious leaders and the religious system which has become fruitless under their care. And, and that's actually what he takes, ooh, takes issue with. 
And so the religious leaders, they figure out pretty quickly that Jesus is not there to give them more power or more authority or more wealth or more influence, but in fact, that he is actually there to strip their authority from them and, and replace the fruitless religious system which they have been governing. And as soon as they realize this, it, it sets them on a collision course. There's this uh, increasing controversy which will lead inevitably to Jesus' execution. And while this showdown will eventually end in execution, it begins with the religious elite coming to challenge Jesus, to challenge his authority, to challenge his kingship, to prove to the people and the crowds that he is a false messiah and not the true king. And in fact, this controversy begins in, in chapter 21, verse 23, where the religious leaders come to question Jesus, and this is what they ask him. They say, uh, how are you doing all of these miracles? Uh, by whose power, by whose authority are you doing these things? And Jesus, in the moment, ingeniously uh, flips the whole thing around on them, and he asks them a question in which they are trapped. And this is what he says. He says, first, before I answer your question, answer my question. John's baptism, was it of human origin or divine origin? And that's a really tricky question because if the Pharisees and religious leaders say, hey, we think that was just of human origin, then essentially they're calling John a false prophet and, and they're going to lose the support of the crowds. But if they say, well, no, we think that that was from God, then in the same breath they're saying, yeah, and we also didn't respond to it. We, we rejected the very real work that Jesus is doing. And, and so suddenly those who came to trap Jesus are themselves trapped. And, and it triggers this long string of controversial exchanges in which they are challenging Jesus' authority. They're trying to find his weak spot. They're trying to discredit him in front of the people. And yet they themselves somehow continue to be discredited through the exchange. In effect, Jesus has now stirred up the hornet's nest and they're coming at him in full force. We pick up in chapter 22, verse 15. Let's unpack some of this as we go. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words yet again. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And in context, it's clear that their compliments are nothing but hot air. In fact, to compliment him in this way as they attempt to trap him is almost more insulting. But in either case, the answer to this question becomes important. It is in some sense the perfect trap because the entire city of Jerusalem is ready to blow. 
And both the revolutionaries, many of whom are carrying swords under their cloaks, and the Roman oppressors are in the crowd looking on with bated breath, waiting for Jesus' answer. The momentum and weight of the city is behind him in this moment. How, what's he going to say? You, you have to imagine a parallel in our context would be being put on stage in front of crowds in Boston in 1773 and, and being asked in, in front of the crowds, hey, is it right to pay the tea tax to the king of England? How do you feel about taxation without representation? <laughs> and the crowds are looking on, and, and you have to answer, but your life hangs in the balance. Because if you say, no, we should not pay, well, well then you could be arrested for treason and executed right then and there. You would hang. But, but, but if, you, if you say yes... Well, well, your life is equally at stake at the hands of the crowds who are calling for violent revolution. Same thing in Jesus' day. Same type of, of tension. This was the hot topic of the day, and, and, and Jesus, surely, he will be forced to answer in a way that either discredits him as the Messiah or that condemns him to execution by the Romans. It, it, it's perfect. And now they wait. Verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Jesus won, religious elite zero. What a stunning way to navigate this difficult issue. It shifted the conversation completely. And in the process, subtly or not so subtly pointed to the fact that these religious leaders had failed to give to God what was God's. This is a, a double slap in the face. Verse 23, That same day, the Sadducees, who are a subset of the religious elite, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question, again to trap him, to make him look foolish. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. In our context, that's weird. In theirs, it, it was honorable. And it actually provided protection for, for a vulnerable woman in, in the society. But he, here comes the hypothetical. He said, now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, 
At the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? And remember, these, this group of religious leaders did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection and the age to come and, and all that most Jews and Christians have put their hope in. But they've invented this hypothetical in an attempt to make Jesus look foolish. And, and here's the response, verse 29. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. He, he's not only broken out of their trap, he has called into question their entire framework, their entire theology, their entire uh, philosophy of Scripture and the age to come. All of it. They have nothing left to say. Verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together again. <laughs> All right, guys, we've, we've got to step up our game. We, we've got to hit him with something harder. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Silence. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> Probably smart. And if we had been there challenging him, we would have stopped asking questions too. Jesus has successfully defended his authority. They've thrown everything at him that they can. Well, maybe we, we can get people to question where his power comes from. And yet, in the aftermath, we're left with the impression that Jesus is operating in the power of the Holy Spirit and the religious elite are actually the ones rejecting the real work of God. Okay, well, that didn't work so well. Maybe we can trap him with a tough question about politics and taxes and, and violent revolution. Oops. Okay, that didn't work so well either. 
Instead, Jesus gives an ingenious way forward that's beautiful and counterintuitive, and we're left with the impression that perhaps the religious elite are not giving to God what is God's. Okay, perhaps we can trap him in a theological question about future hope and resurrection. Okay, that didn't work so well either. And now the people are questioning the way that we interpret Scripture and and, and the future hope that we have. Okay, perhaps we can test him with an in-depth question about the law of Moses and the commandments. I mean, mean, this is our bread and butter. This is what we know this inside and out. Let's get Israel's top expert to come and make Jesus look foolish. Okay, that didn't work so well either. It turns out that he knows the law better than we do. And he knows what the most important commandment is. And it just so turns out that as he's saying it, we're realizing that we're not really following the most important commandment. Because if we were, we'd be following after Jesus instead of challenging his authority. It seems that every time the religious leaders take a swing at Jesus, they themselves end up taking the blow. And and after enough exchanges, they're staggering and, and reeling in front of the crowds. And in that moment, Jesus himself goes on the offensive and asks them a question. And we're told that while the Pharisees were still gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? You've you've come to challenge me. Let's see what you know. And again, they are put to shame as Jesus reveals that the Messiah they have been waiting for is not only a descendant of David, but he is also Lord. that, That he is also the Son of God. And this person is standing right in front of them. And this person has come to replace the religious system which has become fruitless under their care to strip them of everything that they value. And they have nothing left to say. No one dared ask him any more questions. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite, experts in the law, guardians of the temple, the rich, the powerful, the influential, the privileged, in seeking to put him to shame, have themselves now been shamed. And Jesus will have some choice words for them, which we'll study next week. But before we close and head to the tables, uh, there's just a few things I want us uh, to take away from this morning's text. Three things if you're taking notes. And the first is this. Jesus is a genius. And we are quick to recognize that Jesus was loving and compassionate and holy. But what about smart? What about wise? What about intellectual? 
He was the exact representation of God's being. He was God in a, a body. Do you think he was smart? Do you think he was intelligent? Do you think he was wise? Because the scriptures would suggest that he was the wisest person who ever lived. And thus, every time they poke at him, pure genius comes flowing back out, speaking into whatever the issue was. In this single exchange, Jesus talks about the tough uh, political topics of the day. He talks about future hope and resurrection. He talks about the greatest commandment and, and the center of the spiritual life. He talks about the power of God and the beauty of the scriptures. He talks about the true nature of the Messiah. He is full of wisdom and insight. And, and that should actually affect how we think about Jesus and how we approach him and how we worship him and, and how we pray to him. Even today. First, Jesus is a genius. Second, the world is still challenging his authority. It's interesting that no one dared ask him any more questions that day. But I bet it wasn't too many days before the world started challenging Jesus' authority again challenging his kingship, questioning who he is and what he had come to do. The world has been challenging Jesus' authority ever since. Psalm 2 says it this way. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, the elite, the powerful, rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed or against his Messiah. That's what that word means. And, and they have been doing this all along. The world is still challenging Jesus' authority, is still challenging his kingship. And this is going to show up in, in cultural attitudes about who God is. The, the narrative that we're reading this morning, it hasn't stopped. People are still questioning Jesus over some of these exact same things. Could he really be king? Could he really be divine? Could he really be this? Could he really be that? Th this attitude will help shape and color conversations that you have with your non-believing friend in a coffee shop. Because there's this overwhelming worldly cultural attitude that we don't want Jesus to be king. And that attitude persists today. So first, Jesus is a genius. Second, the world is still challenging his authority. And third and finally, as we close, Jesus is still speaking. It's ironic to me that in the course of this conversation, he speaks into tough political issues of his day and what it looks like to center your life around God and what the future holds for those who follow him. And no matter what the question is, Jesus has something to say. And yet, with all that we wrestle with in the modern age, I, I wonder how often we are willing to come and sit and listen to Jesus. 
He is a genius. Political, spiritual, emotional, philosophical genius. And yet, I wonder how often we take him seriously. I, I wonder how often we look to his teachings with any real sense of authority. I wonder how often we look to him for ingenious and counterintuitive solutions to the very real problems facing our nation. Jesus has something to say about immigration. He has something to say about our poisonous, bipartisan politics. He has something to say about your sex life and your career choice and, and, and what you plan to do tomorrow and next month and next year. He has something to say about the patterns of sin that you inherited from your family and, and carry with you day in and day out. Jesus has something to say about how you engage in national issues and what you post online, and who you date, and what you put into your body, and what you put into your mind, and, 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 and what comes out of your mouth when it comes time to speak, and how you give of your time and, and talent and resources, and on and on it goes. Jesus is alive. He, he's the embodiment of God's wisdom. He is the author of life. And he has something to say about all of it. And you may not be able to hear him perfectly. Not all at once. Not at first. But I would rather us hear him imperfectly than assume he has nothing to say. And so what I want us to do uh, as we close is I want us to pray and I want us to listen. And, and I want to make space for us to pray uh, for one another in areas that, that we need wisdom, in, in areas that we need to hear God's voice. And, and so I want us to pray over one another that, that we would receive God's wisdom and that we would hear the voice of Jesus over and against all of the other voices that we have to listen to. And, and, and that takes time, and it takes space, and it takes practice. And so what I want us to do in, in closing is to practice and, and, and to pray and to listen. Because while the center of the text is about a clash between the religious elite and Jesus over his kingship, what gets revealed throughout the course of this clash is that Jesus actually has a lot to say about all of life. He is a deep well of wisdom. And if we are to thrive under his kingship, if we are to thrive under his kingship, we must be willing to do what the religious elite were unwilling to do. 
which is to come and sit and humble ourselves and listen. That's how we thrive under his kingship. And so here's what I want us to do. Uh, In just a a moment, I want us to uh, break into groups of three, maybe four, but the smaller uh, the group, the better. And and I want us to take a moment to, to pray for one another, groups of three or four. And if you are willing... I I want you to answer this question. I want you to share your name if you don't know each other's names. And then I I, I want you to answer this question. Where do you need God's wisdom? Or said another way, where are you desiring God to speak? Could be sexuality and dating. It could have to do with your marriage. Could have to do with navigating Uh, difficult circumstances, the politics of the workplace. Could be about choosing a a future career or the way that you manage your money or, or issues with your family, forgiving your parents. Whatever it is, if you're willing... We, we would love for you to share that with just two, three other people. Hey, here's where I'm really needing God's wisdom. Here's uh, where I'm, I'm desiring God to speak and guide. And, and here's how this goes. If um, Karshi is in my group or whatever, and next slide, and he just says, hey, I need to discern Jesus' voice in, or I need God's wisdom in, this situation with my family. It's really complicated. I don't understand how to navigate it. I don't understand how to, how to forgive and reconcile. I need God's wisdom in this. Then, in its simplest form, because some of us are like, oh, I don't know, I don't like praying out loud, and it's kind of scary, and uh, in its simplest form, this is what we're going to say. God, we pray that you would speak to Annie, Car- whoever's in your group, and, and, and that he would be able to discern your wisdom for this situation with his family. It, it can be that simple. God, we pray that you would speak to Karsh and that he would be able to discern your wisdom for this family situation. And, and as we're doing that, one of the things that I want us to grow in as a church is this kind of posture of listening. We want to be a praying people. We want to be a listening people. And, and God speaks to you, not in, not in a thundering voice, but in, in a whisper and images and scriptures and, and, and thoughts that subtly emerge in your mind. And you don't have to be super anything in, in order for that to work. You don't have to be super holy. You don't have to be super perfect. You don't have to be super mature. You could have given your life to Jesus yesterday. You might not yet have given your life to Jesus, and you can still hear his voice. He, he finds a way to speak into our hearts and minds in our own language in a way that makes sense to us. And so as my group is praying over Karsh or whatever, I, I'm also listening in, in, in case there's an opportunity for me to say, hey, Karsh, as we were praying, I've just had Romans 8 on my heart, and, and I just want to read it over you as we pray. Hey, Karsh, as we've been praying, I just feel like, hey, maybe, maybe this is from God. <laughs> maybe this is the way that he wants to encourage you. And I don't know. You have to test it. You have to weigh it. Take it with a grain of salt. But, but here's, here's what I'm hearing, sensing, feeling. Maybe this will encourage you. In, in the situation that you're in. And, and so we want this 
in order to learn and grow in this way as a church, which I really feel God is leading us in this direction, in order to do this, uh, the gathering place has to be a safe space. And this has to be a place where we can try and this has to be a place where we can fail. And, and not feel pressure and not be stressed out and not feel like we're being judged, but just, hey, this is what I'm feeling, sensing, whatever. And so uh, we desire for this to be a safe place and all of us are in process, myself included. We're all in process, kind of learning how to press into God and press into the Holy Spirit and how to listen and how to pray. For years, probably the first five years, following Jesus, I was terrified to pray out loud in front of people. Why God wanted me to be a pastor, I have no idea. I was terrified, like shaky, scared. And the only way I got better at it was by doing it. <laughs> it's like I, I just had to, do. oh man, I don't even know what to say, but here, here's what's on my heart. And so we want this to be a safe place uh, where we're learning and growing and pressing in. And so um, go ahead and circle up in groups of three or four. You can mess up the chairs if you want to. And let's take a couple minutes to share and to listen and to pray and encourage one another.